My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Recently, there's been a lot of information in the news about forced labor being used in the production of goods that are coming to Canadian markets. So the kinds of examples of harm are widespread and have been going on for a really long time. So there's absolutely no reason for Canada not to have responded to try and curb those abuses by now. That's the voice of Emily Dwyer. She and Aidan Gilchrist Blackwood are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Emily Dwyer is the Policy Director at the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability, or CNCA, and Aidan Gilchrist Blackwood is its Network Coordinator. The CNCA is a network of Canadian civil society organizations, including labor, human rights, faith-based and environmental organizations of a wide range of kinds and sizes from across the country, that are working to ensure that Canadian companies respect human rights and the environment when working abroad. According to Dwyer, examples of corporations based in Canada that are responsible for environmental and human rights abuses around the world are, quote, widespread and long-standing, end quote, whether directly or through subcontractors or security forces that they hire. This is at least sometimes most visible among Canadian mining and other resource extraction companies, given Canada's disproportionately large role in the global mining sector. But it's true of lots of other kinds of corporations, too. Dwyer pointed to examples in the garment industry, manufacturing, seafood processing, and agriculture, just to name a few. Kinds of abuses include killings, gang rape, serious bodily harm, forced labor, and lots of other things. Around 2005, there were parliamentary hearings in Canada related to certain abuses by Canadian mining companies, which resulted in a series of quite strong recommendations for change. Then the federal government held a series of roundtables across the country involving academics, civil society, industry, and government to discuss these recommendations. While the recommendations have largely not, to this point, been enacted, the roundtables did prompt the related civil society organizations to begin coordinating more extensively among themselves. Not every group was able to participate in every meeting, so they set up an informal network as a way to make sure that the right voices were present to speak at the right events and to share information about what had happened. The groups that were involved decided that they liked being able to work together in this way, so they formalized the network into the CNCA. Membership of the network has doubled over the years to its current total of 40 organizations. Members include Amnesty International, the United Church of Canada, Unifor, Mining Watch, the Canadian Labour Congress, Cooperation Canada, Development and Peace, Friends of the Earth, Kairos, Peace Brigades International, the Public Service Alliance, and lots of others. Coordinating and sharing information among all of these organizations has remained an important role for the CNCA over the years, but the network has also engaged in campaigning. In 2013, they launched a campaign that they called Open for Justice, which was demanding the creation of an independent ombuds office empowered to investigate allegations linked to Canadian mining companies. Organizations in the CNCA network and the members of those organizations were very active on this issue. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians called or sent postcards to their MPs, signed petitions, or took part in delegations. 
And in 2018, the federal government announced the creation of an office that they originally said would have many of the powers that the CNCA was demanding, including the ability to compel documents and testimony from companies. The mining industry lobbied hard, however, and by the time the office was actually launched, the federal liberals had pretty much gutted the office's powers. So the campaign continues to be active. The group's main campaign at the moment is called Non-Negotiable. They're demanding that Canada catch up with a number of other countries and implement a law that would require companies to stop profiting from human rights and environmental abuses and take action to stop abuses throughout their supply chain, and that would help impacted communities access Canadian courts in order to enforce these obligations. This would apply to all sectors and all human rights. The network has produced model legislation and two different bills based on that work, Bills C-262 and C-263, have been introduced in Parliament and the campaign has been mobilizing people in support of these bills in ways similar to their earlier campaign. I speak with Dwyer and Gilchrist Blackwood about the work of the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. I'm Emily Dwyer. I'm the Policy Director at the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. And I'm Aidan Gilchrist Blackwood. I'm the Network Coordinator at the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. And we are a network of 40 organizations, including labor unions, faith-based organizations, human rights organizations, environmental organizations of a variety of different sizes, from large to small grassroots organizations that have a sort of collective mandate to work on issues of Canadian corporate accountability. How did you first get involved in human rights and social justice-related work? My entry point came as an undergraduate student. Some of my initial work related to the areas of work of the CNCA was with a research group looking at allegations of human rights and environmental abuses linked to Canadian mining companies in Latin America. Doing some work with that research group and getting to know other folks doing that work was my entry point and also motivation to continue doing this kind of work. From there, it's led here and there, spent some time in the community sector doing some grassroots organizing and bounced around here and there addressing, I think, issues of social justice and human rights from some different angles that all kind of overlap and end up being related. In my case, human rights, social justice, women's rights, and labor rights are something that when I was growing up was an issue around our family table and with our extended family. But probably one of the key moments for me was just after I finished high school, I made my first trip to Guatemala and spent several months learning Spanish and living in a rural community. That first experience led me to return to Guatemala quite a few times and did human rights accompaniment work, an internship, and was exposed both to the kind of resiliency of impacted communities fighting for their rights and also the particular role and responsibility of Canada in some of those violations because I met with people who were suffering from health issues, inability to access water or land and other violations linked to Canadian mining there. After that, I eventually went to law school, trying to find some skills to help support that work. And I've been with the CNCA for 10 years now. In general terms, what kinds of abuses related to human rights and the environment around the world have Canadian companies been involved in over the years? Unfortunately, the examples are widespread and longstanding. If you look just at the cases that have been brought to Canadian courts, those include allegations of gang rape by mine security, 
serious bodily harm, death, forced labor. So the kinds of harms that we're talking about are quite serious. An important example would be looking back at the disaster in Rana Plaza. Uh, That was the collapse of a building in Bangladesh in 2013 that killed more than 1,100 people. The building included several garment factories. Despite major cracks appearing in the building the day before, workers were ordered to show up for work on the morning that it collapsed, killing many of them. And a reminder that Canadian brands' labels were found on goods that were in the wreckage there. So there's linkages there. More recently, there's been a lot of information in the news about forced labor being used in the production of goods that are coming to Canadian markets. Both examples from goods imported from the Uyghur regions in China, but also medical gloves used as personal protection equipment imported from Malaysia, and examples of seafood from Thailand. And just last week, I was speaking with organizations in Chile who have documented the use of forced labor and the production of some agricultural goods that have come into Canadian shelves. So the kinds of examples of harm are widespread and have been going on for a really long time. So there's absolutely no reason for Canada not to have responded to try and curb those abuses by now. Back in 2005, there were parliamentary hearings where partners from the Philippines were talking about the impacts of Canadian mining operations there. It led to really strong recommendations, and those haven't been fulfilled yet. A couple of additional pieces of context are highlighting some reporting that's been done by other independent organizations that has documented the scope and scale of harms that have been linked to the actions of Canadian companies around the world. So one report that's coming to mind is a report called the Canada Brand Report that looked at allegations of violence linked to Canadian mining companies between the year 2000 and 2015, so over a 15-year period of time, and documented many instances of violence, including killings, including instances of criminalization. And so reporting like this speaks to a really widespread problem. How did the CNCA initially form? There's a bit of internal debate about whether it was officially formed in 2005 or 2006, but during that period. And it was right after those recommendations that I talked about that came from the Human Rights Subcommittee that led to national roundtables on mining in developing countries. So it was a series of multi-stakeholder roundtables that included academics, civil society, industry representatives, government representatives from multiple parties. And there was an interest in having there be some coordination among civil society at those roundtables. Not everyone was obviously able to participate in each one. So kind of a mechanism to be reporting back on what was happening, to get together, to think about strategy, make sure the right voices were around the table, make sure that people were speaking in a way that was supported by wider civil society. And the CNCA membership seemed to like that coordination. They found it useful, a helpful response to think about how to amplify the voices of their partners around the world, to strategize about how to get the ear of the Canadian government and how to try and advance corporate accountability measures. Some of our members have been working on these issues much before that time, but it was around 2005, 2006 that we started to work in a coordinated fashion. 
And when I started about 10 years ago, we had 20 members and we've now doubled and we're a group of 40 member organizations now. What organizations belong to the network? The membership that we have is quite a broad spectrum of Canadian civil society. It includes human rights organizations like Amnesty International Canada, Human Rights Watch, international development organizations like Cooperation Canada, ACOC, faith-based groups like Development and Peace Caritas Canada, United Church, Kairos, labor unions like QP, Unifor, Steelworkers, Canadian Labor Congress, and also regional specific and solidarity groups like CEDAL, the Committee for Human Rights in Latin America, SLAM, which is Solidarité Laurentide Amérique Centrale, which is Latin American Solidarity from the Laurentians region, the Canada-Tibet Committee, etc. There's a really wide range of reasons why members have joined the network. For some, it's quite obvious, like Mining Watch Canada. Their mission is to work to hold companies accountable and to bring light to the kinds of harms that are being enabled by the current international system. They have staff who work on this full time. But there's other organizations like Co-Development Canada, for example, on the West Coast that primarily works in solidarity with nurses organizations and in other international development projects. I don't want to speak for CODEV, but for many of our member organizations, we've heard similar things, which is it's not necessarily that their focus is on corporate accountability or mining justice or business and human rights, but they found that actually the failure to regulate companies by Canada was leading to barriers to them being able to pursue their other development goals. So they didn't set out to try and do work on corporate accountability, but found that in order to properly support workers' rights, women's rights, Indigenous peoples, and other work, that they needed to first be joining towards calls to regulate companies. From its origins in those roundtables back in 2005 or 2006, how has the CNCA developed and pursued its work? A centerpiece of what we still continue to do is providing an opportunity for civil society to share information with each other, to coordinate strategy and campaigns and learn from one another. But we've also developed some other parts of our work over those years. In 2009, the network rallied behind Bill C-300, which was a private member's bill that would have conditioned Canadian government support on companies' adherence to human rights norms. It came quite close to becoming a law. It lost by six votes at third reading in the House of Commons. Then in 2013, we launched our Open for Justice campaign, which called for the creation of an independent ombudsperson empowered to investigate allegations of abuse linked to Canadian mining companies. That was a long-standing campaign that saw a lot of activity by CNCA members and Canadians at large, hundreds of thousands of Canadians wrote postcards or signed petitions, called their MPs. We got reports back that for some MPs, this was the issue that they were hearing the most about, which is unusual for issues that are outside of Canada and involving human rights to be the top issue that an MP would be hearing about. We did 
manage in 2018 to have the government of Canada publicly announce the creation of an office that was supposed to be independent and with the power to compel documents and testimony, really empowered to effectively investigate allegations of abuse. So that was an important win for this movement. Unfortunately, after that announcement, there was a pretty significant pushback and mobilization campaign, lobbying campaign by the mining industry, and the government ended up watering down its approach, gutting the office's powers before it was opened. So that campaign continues to be active. But we did shift the narrative, but are still waiting for that office to be effective. And now our main campaign is around human rights and environmental due diligence legislation, which is trying to bring into place a law that would actually require companies to stop profiting off of abuses, to take action to prevent and remedy human rights violations throughout their supply chains and global operations. That would help impacted communities and workers access Canadian courts to be able to enforce those obligations and access remedy, and that would apply to all human rights. We're still not at a place where we're going to see that legislation passed soon, but we have created the space where we can be seriously talking about that in Parliament, where we have MPs from multiple parties saying, this is what we need. And even some industry voices saying that might be somewhere to go. The model law that we put out was endorsed by 150 organizations from 32 countries around the world. And so we feel really responds to what people on the ground are asking for Canada to do, which is to kind of move away from this voluntary approach to one where we're really saying enough's enough. It's time to have real rules and real consequences for companies who are trying to profit off of people being harmed and the environment being damaged. Part of what we do is educate Canadians and Canadian decision makers about the kinds of harms that are linked to Canadian companies and Canadian supply chains and the possible solutions that there can be in Canada to help address the problem. We do grassroots mobilization campaigns, petitions, letter writing, call your MP actions. And we also have a pretty strong network of experts, both within Canada and around the world, on law reform, on various aspects of Canadian law and policy expertise, and of course the expertise that comes from strong connections and being able to bring the voices of impacted communities directly to the conversation here in Canada. We have the evidence from previous campaigns that outreach to MPs, even from a relatively small number of people, can have an impact in shaping some of these conversations. And so our current campaign in advocating for a law that meets these parameters, we're focused on a couple of different aspects, one of which is helping equip people with some tools where if they want to do outreach with decision makers, that makes that process a little bit more straightforward. So automated email tools, for example. We've launched a campaign site, non-negotiable.ca, where we've been trying to work with some of these campaign tools and again, sort of giving people tools in their toolkit for doing outreach with decision makers. A really important part of all this is making sure that the voices of directly impacted communities are highlighted. That happens at the level of the CNCA network, often through members who are part of our network and work that we then do to bring people together into conversation. 
And so, for example, just next week, even there's going to be a Bangladeshi labor rights activist, Kalpona Actor, who's going to be touring in Canada and is going to be speaking from her perspective on some of what Canada needs to do to get accountable and to protect workers around the world. What else can you say about the non-negotiable campaign and where it stands at the moment? In May 2021, we published a model law that was based on several years of consultation and engagement with a lot of sectors, in large part based on trying to catch up to European best practice when it came to this kind of legislation and making sure that it fit the Canadian context and responded to the priorities and demands of impacted communities. And then in March of 2022, it was tabled in Parliament as a private member's bill, along with a complementary bill that would give the ombudsperson the powers it needs to investigate. So those are bills 262 and 263, tabled by MP Peter Julian from BC and MP Heather McPherson from Alberta. What I was saying in terms of not expecting legislation immediately is that there's actually another legislative proposal that's in Parliament right now that is really weak and that we're really concerned about and that is taking a bit more of parliamentary attention right now. It's a modern slavery reporting bill that's already gone through the Senate and that is currently being studied by the Foreign Affairs Committee. But unfortunately, the bill that's currently being studied by Parliament is quite meaningless. It would just require companies to publish an annual report on if they've taken any steps to identify and address forced labor and child labor in their supply chains. It wouldn't actually require them to take any of those steps. And it wouldn't actually require companies to stop using forced labor. So we think that that approach is really problematic. And we're worried that that kind of bill that makes it look like the government's doing something, that makes it look like there's a response to the serious problem of forced labor in Canadian supply chains, will quash the real momentum we think is building in Canada towards a more effective response. So that's part of what we're trying to focus on right now is, A, to try and make sure that Canada keeps its focus on bringing in legislation that would actually respond to the demands of impacted people, that would actually help hold companies accountable, that would actually change the situation on the ground instead of just being window dressing. So we are still hoping that in the coming months, we will see movement in Parliament towards that kind of effective law. And there's some reason for hope around that, because we did in the spring of last year, organize a multi-party press conference that included MPs from the Liberal, Green, Bloc Québécois, and NDP, who all spoke in support of that kind of approach. They all spoke in support of a law that would require companies to not just report, but actually take steps to prevent abuse that would require companies to undertake due diligence, that would help people who are impacted access Canadian courts, and that wouldn't only apply to forced labour, but would also look at all human rights. And am I correct in understanding that this is a kind of law that other countries already have? 
Yeah, so there's a real growing momentum around the world, particularly in Europe, but we're also seeing proposals popping up at other parts of the world as well. And most of those laws are included under the umbrella term of mandatory human rights and environmental due diligence. Essentially, it is referring to legislation that is trying to ensure that companies are required to respect human rights. That was enshrined in the UN guiding principles that were unanimously endorsed in 2011. And there are several countries that have either passed or are far along the road towards bringing in legislation to hold companies accountable. The first example of that kind of legislation came in in France in 2017. There have been proposals that narrowly missed coming into force in Switzerland. There are laws that have come into force in Germany, Norway. There's a new proposal in the Netherlands. And the European Union is expected to pass its directive sometime, possibly by the end of this year. So I would say, without a doubt, Canada's falling far behind in that sphere. At the same time, we're not necessarily asking Canada to take any specific law that has been passed anywhere else to be replicated in Canada, because there's certainly critiques about the existing European laws. Some of them apply to large companies only. Some of them don't go so far as to include civil liability. Some of them include some loopholes, like only applying to established business relationships or kind of letting you contract out of your obligations. So there's lots of room for Canada to go beyond what the examples are in Europe. But without a doubt, we're far behind those examples. And we do think that the existence of those other laws and legislative proposals in Europe changes things a bit in Canada. What do you have planned coming up in concrete terms to push the non-negotiable campaign forward? For this sort of immediate term period of the next several months, as Emily's mentioned, because there is a proposal on the table that is capturing a lot of attention, we see it as a particularly important moment to be mobilized and to be expressing quite loudly and clearly the type of law that actually does what we need to prevent human rights abuse from Canadian companies. So the immediate term strategic priorities in terms of the campaign Our folks mobilizing, especially to do outreach with decision makers and vocalizing, again, the type of law that actually does what we need to curb these abuses. In the longer term, beyond that, we have a couple of key moments coming up that I think will be really important for highlighting the continuing need for corporate accountability in Canada. Emily highlighted earlier a period where the government announced the creation of an ombudsperson, but later it was not actually given the powers that it needed to effectively investigate human rights abuses by Canadian companies. And the five-year anniversary of that original announcement is coming up in January. So that is going to be an important moment. And again, drawing back to something Emily highlighted, the 10th anniversary of the Rana Plaza disaster is going to be April 2023. So another really key moment to be continuing to highlight this really urgent need for accountability for Canadian companies and the urgent need for a law that can actually prevent these kinds of abuses. So those are a couple of key moments that we see kind of on the horizon that we're preparing for. You have been listening to my interview with Emily Dwyer and Aidan Gilchrist-Blackwood about the Canadian Network on Corporate Accountability. To find out more about the network, go to cnca-rcrce.ca.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>